You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, friends and fellow servants of Christ. He is risen. So after meditating with you on the wonderful privilege and the weighty responsibility of parenthood, I thought I would take up next a subject of some debate and even controversy within the church. It won't, by the way, be the last potentially controversial topic that I'll tackle in this series. But the question before us today is whether we, as parents or prospective parents, have the right to decide when we will become parents and how many people we will be parents to. In other words, I want to talk about the subject of birth control from a biblical perspective. Now, I've known that I would need to address this subject sooner or later in this series, and the reason I've decided to do so now is that I think it's a question that could easily arise in connection with some of the things we've just been talking about. So, for example, some uh, who have been gripped by the unspeakable privilege of procreation, something we talked about, have concluded there can't possibly be any good and God-honoring reason to put limits on our parenting. There have been others, however, that you might say have been so clearly um, able to see the weight of responsibility that comes with parenting that they've decided, you might say, to take a pass entirely on the whole enterprise. And so with the help of modern contraceptives, They're quite happy to live their lives married, but without kids. So in this podcast, I'm going to try to show what I regard to be the serious error of both of those reactions. My topic is obviously relevant to more than just parents, but also all those who are married or those who are contemplating marriage. So that's what's ahead if you choose to listen on. Of course, the title I've chosen for this message is a bit provocative because it's the well-known name for an organization that is devoted to providing more than just contraceptives to women, Planned Parenthood. Uh, They are also the largest provider of abortions in our country, and that's something that makes this organization, quite rightly, an abomination in the eyes of biblically-minded pro-life Christians. But folks, it's interesting, isn't it? These leading advocates for the murder of the unborn in the womb don't take their name from abortion itself. That's a hugely controversial and, by any measure, a rather unpleasant experience, no matter what your experience, or rather your perspective. Uh, Rather, uh, they're in that name trying to convey what they're advocates of, and that is the right of all women to be freed from the burden of an unplanned pregnancy. They're just simply giving resources to men and women, for that matter, to ensure that they become parents only according to their own plans. They're not pro-abortion. They're pro-choice and pro-planning. It's just another illustration of the maxim, he who names wins. But in itself, the expression planned parenthood is actually very useful for our purposes today. Planning uh, is generally a good thing, something the Bible encourages, encourages us to do. So what are the implications for us in this area of parenting? 
Uh, first, I want to outline the arguments that Christians have made against any and all use of birth control. And I'm going to interact with them in a critical way. I'm going to try to show why I've never been fully persuaded by them. But then I want to conclude or spend the uh, second portion of our time together uh, making the case that a very great deal of the evangelical church's embrace of birth control and use of it is in direct contradiction to a biblical view of parenting and even one of the most fundamental purposes of sex and marriage itself. Uh, Practically speaking, those who argue most cogently against birth control have some excellent points, and I want to point that out before we're finished. So I'm tackling a big subject. Uh, This is going to be a little bit longer podcast than uh, the ones previous. It might take more than one uh, commute to work to get through it all. Uh, Let me start by talking about, first, arguments against birth control and what I regard as their inadequacy. Now, the position that all use of artificial forms of birth control is immoral is one that's been long associated with the Roman Catholic Church. Indeed, that is the official position of Catholicism today. Uh, There was um, a long-standing precedent for it, but in 1968, quite decisively, Pope Paul VI published his encyclical uh, in the English Human Life, subtitle, On the Regulation of Birth. Now, this came just some years after, in the United States, uh, the most popular contraceptive uh, had been legalized uh, and uh, made available to the population. Generally, it's called the pill. The Pope made use of the church's, pardon me, made the church's position uh, official that artificial birth control was, quote, intrinsically wrong. And he also had, among many other things, this to say about what a widespread embrace of contraceptives would look like. Uh, He said it would open wide the way for marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Uh, So that was the position of the Roman Catholic Church, most officially uh, documented in 1968, Uh, The church did make allowance for couples to practice a kind of natural family planning or birth control by abstinence from sex during certain uh, seasons, uh, but otherwise uh, condemned what they call artificial forms of birth control. Now, as unpopular as this view is, uh, even among Roman Catholics today, Uh, It's my understanding that it's actually the prevailing view in church history up to the modern era. Now, uh, as soon as I say that, I have to acknowledge that it's in the 20th century in particular that uh, birth control options uh, become far more uh, uh, accessible to a common man. Uh, So it is a a modern issue, but there's a longstanding precedent in the church against it. I've just spoken of Roman Catholicism. Uh, Now let me just say there has also been a strong voice within evangelical Protestantism as well. I began my ministry in the 90s, and there was during that time a flurry uh, of books written by uh, evangelical Protestants uh, raising uh, a cry of alarm 
uh, about uh, contraceptives, birth control. Some of them were written by women who themselves had the testimony of being immersed in the feminist movement, and they had come, uh, by God's grace, to see how anti-biblical the view of marriage and family and children uh, was in that movement. I can't speak to all the factors that gave rise to this anti-birth control movement within evangelicalism, but I do have the impression that it was a movement of thought that coincided with the pro-life movement more broadly, Uh, the uh, rise to defend the unborn and to assert the sanctity of human life, even in the womb. Um, If that's so, that all the more uh, made me, uh, early on, willing uh, to listen to this argument that's made against all use of birth control. Now, I'll just put my cards on the table, as it were, uh, and say here at the outset, I have felt keenly uh, the weight and the cogency of the anti-birth control arguments, uh, at least when they're put in their best forms. Uh, my position has been for many, many years, uh, to quote the King James, almost thou persuadest me. I'm going to outline why I'm not persuaded of the immorality of any and all use of birth control, but I'm also going to outline what I think we need to hear uh, among the more cogent arguments uh, against birth control. So there are three main arguments that I'll consider by those opposed to all use of birth control. One's exegetical, and then two are theological, and I think uh, all three need to be reckoned with. The exegetical argument is the argument against birth control from Genesis chapter 38 and the sad case of Onan. Now, just uh, to preface what I'm about to say, uh, modern-day forms of birth control make absolutely no appearance in the Bible. Whether it's condoms or IUDs or the pill, there's not a word, of course, said in ancient scripture about these uh, things. We do not conclude, however, The Bible has nothing to say on this subject, any more than we do not conclude that it has nothing to say about the sin of a modern, the modern day uh, sin of elective abortion uh, or pornography or what have you. Here's the question some have raised Does the Bible speak to the issue of separating the act of sexual intimacy from the possibility of conceiving children the way that? modern contraceptives do. And many Christians have felt that there's at least one clear passage that does. This is the account of God's anger against Onan, one of the sons of Judah. Genesis 38. Uh, If you're not familiar with the passage, you might hit pause and do a quick read of it. I'm not going to read the whole passage. It's an exceedingly unpleasant passage. Uh, account. Uh, The account of Onan is, and the larger account of Judah and Tamar uh, is likewise exceedingly uh, sad and unpleasant. Onan's brother, Er, is Judah's firstborn, and he has died. He's fallen under God's wrath for wickedness. Er has left a widow uh, by the name of Tamar. And in the story, Judah has reminded his son, Onan, of his cultural responsibilities in that case. He should take his dead brother's wife in marriage, and he should have children with her. Now, this is a provision that's known uh, as the Leveret marriage. 
and it comes to be part of Moses' law later in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 25. And it becomes a provision and a duty uh, specified by God's law uh, in order that, we're told, the name of the man who dies without children would not be blotted out. Uh, That's because the firstborn of that new leveret marriage takes his dead father's name and his inheritance. So that's the duty that Judah is reminding uh, his son Onan to fulfill. But in the account, as you will know, many of you, Onan is a despicable man. And we read in verse 9, Genesis 38, But Onan knew that the offspring was not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. What follows next uh, seems to many to be a verdict on the subject we're discussing today. Verse 10 reads, And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now you can see why this passage seems relevant to our topic. Oh, the term for what Onan does, I'll render it in the Latin for the sake of delicacy, coitus interruptus, uh, he's clearly seeking sexual relations with Tamar without the possibility of impregnating her. Sex without kids, that's what Onan is seeking. The same thing that the modern use of contraceptives seeks. And many of church in church history have seen God's wrath against Onan as settling the question. You might put it this way, Onan is the only person in the Bible who uses birth control of a kind and looks what happens to him. Well, it's an important text, to be sure. And here's the crux of the question, I think, as we try to understand uh, the way it applies to our question. Was Onan being punished for resorting to a form of birth control per se. In other words, was God angry at him for this very separating of sexual intimacy from the possibility of begetting and conceiving children? Is that what provoked God to anger against Onan? Or was he being punished for the underlying reason behind all this? And that is his unwillingness to do his duty. Indeed, in spite in spite against uh, Tamar and his brother, uh, his unwillingness to, as the scripture text uh, renders it, give offspring to his brother. I think actually, as I've just indicated, the text does point to the second of these as the heart issue of what makes God so angry. Verse 8, Judah says, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his Folks, this is how I understand uh, the reason for God's wrath against Onan. Onan was a despicable man, and he did something despicable to Tamar. And God judged him severely. Not, I would suggest, for using birth control in the abstract. But if I may put it this way, God judged him for using Tamar. Uh, My listeners will have to judge for themselves, of course. I don't think Genesis 38 represents a slam-dunk text for the immorality of birth control. There's another 
plausible and I think more compelling explanation for why God's angry, not some isolated uh, principle that birth control is wrong, but because of the evil heart of Onan that used and abused his sister-in-law and that rebelled against his duty. So I've taken up that uh, exegetical uh, argument uh, from Genesis 38. Let me move on to what I think are more substantial arguments that are made against any and all use of birth control. They're both theological. The second one is this. It's an argument against birth control from the biblical connection between marriage and procreation. Here's how you could put the argument, simply but profoundly, this claim. Contraceptives separate something God has joined together. That is to say, they separate marriage from children. And this violates God's creation ordinance. Now, I think we've already been impressed, I hope, uh, early in this series with the fact that the very first word of God to Adam and Eve in the garden is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That and what follows it is together called the cultural mandate. I've already made much of that, and I think the point is undeniable that fundamental to the purpose of marriage, and for that matter, the marital act, is procreation. It's clear. They're in the garden. I also quoted, I think, from Malachi 2, uh, where God says, Did he not make them one, speaking of those married, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So God brings men and women together in marriage, in part, in order that they might have children. That's fundamental to the purpose of marriage. And folks, for anybody who's willing to listen uh, to this particular part of the argument, there is a lot of wonderful theology that's being leveraged. Uh, The beauty of marriage and family the wonder of procreation, the blessing of children, the vital importance of children in the mission of God and the earth. And these are things I've touched on. I actually think that uh, in this connection, one of the strongest arguments that has been made against birth control is, is just the emotional one coming out of that good theology. Uh, you could hear it in, in this way. Um, with a privilege this high and holy, How dare we say, no, thank you, with a blessing that is this profound. How irrational of us to say, no, thank you. I'm going to say in a moment or two, proponents of this view are able to see a lot in the church that is worldly. So folks, I will be uh, ready to agree that it can be a desecration of the institution of marriage to intentionally enter into it with no interest or plans to become parents and to live a life of sexual activity with never any intention of conceiving the children that God desires, uh, I think that that is immoral. Uh, Just as an illustration, if I were giving premarital counseling to a couple, we were talking through some of these wonderful issues and I got a settled Uh, intention from them that they were going to marry and serve the Lord, but without ever trying to have children, I think I'd have to say to them, you know, I'm not going to be able to marry you because you're denying something fundamental to God's purpose in marriage. 
But folks, I think that the good theology that's being used in this argument uh, can easily overstate the case. And there can enter into the discussion at this point a couple of misconceptions, and I want to highlight them. Number one, uh, it's a misconception that procreation is the only purpose of marriage, or even the primary one. Now, I think that was a particular tendency in the medieval era, uh, the era of the church's life when celibacy was considered the highest spiritual state for man. Of course, marriage was always uh, acknowledged as legitimate. We need to propagate the race. And additionally, the Apostle Paul makes clear it's better to marry than to burn. Uh, Marriage is a way of preserving us from sexual impurity. What I love about the emphasis of the Protestant Reformation in this area of marriage is that our fathers in the Reformation saw clearly that there's a third purpose for marriage, which is actually the most fundamental purpose. It's the highest of all the purposes, and that is intimate companionship in our service to the Lord. Uh, We might have expected God to say, it is not possible for Adam to have a baby, so I will make a helper suitable to him. But (laughs) that's not actually uh, what we read. Uh, God, having created Adam, uh, says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. And of course, Eve would uniquely be of help to him in this task of multiplying and filling the earth, but... Uh, His, God's uh, creation of Eve and joining her to Adam in marriage was most fundamentally for the purpose of companionship. One anti-contraceptive writer uh, overstates her case, in my judgment, when she says this, marriage is more than just a man and a woman. Marriage is a family, a husband, a wife, and all the sweet little children God gives them. The implication of this, it seems to me, is that a marriage without children is not a true marriage. I don't think that's what she would truly uh, conclude, but it seems to be the way she's speaking in that moment of rhetoric. And of course, it's not true. Marry couples without children, despite their intentions and ambitions uh, for uh, a family, are not the less married. So I want to make this point at this place. We have to have a bigger view of marriage than a merely utilitarian one. Keeping pure, making babies. I would like to say the Bible gives us a romantic view of marriage. In other words, marriage is about the delight of the greatest of all human relationships. And along with that, it's very biblical to see sexual intimacy as fundamentally about enjoying that relationship. Uh, Sex in the Bible is about more than just having babies. Uh, In another place, I've called uh, sex, by analogy, the sacrament of marriage. It's God's invention for husband and wife to give physical expression to their spoken love. It's a sign and seal of their vows in marriage. So, with these things in mind, I am deeply sympathetic to couples who say, for example, we're looking forward to starting our family, but we're hoping for a couple of years of enjoying each other first in our new marriage. 
<clears throat> I think this can be part of a larger and biblically, biblically balanced view of marriage and family. <clears throat> a second misconception that I want to highlight in light of this theological argument that I think can be overstated, it's a misconception to think that fulfilling the cultural mandate is merely about the numbers of children that married couples have. Of course, there are those opposed to any and all use of birth control who are uh, not infrequently known by their large families. And I am going to go on in a bit to insist, I think the church needs more large families, more on that in just a moment. But let me just reiterate something which uh, really lies behind this whole series on Christian parenting, and that is this, the cultural mandate, which is our mandate, is about more than making lots of babies. In order to fill the earth with what God wants in our seed, in our children, there is a lot of conscientious parental discipleship that's involved. That means that parents have more to consider than just how many children a given woman can bear. They need to consider all the demands of raising those children to love Christ and to serve him. Here's another writer speaking against all uses of birth control, and he appeals to this cultural mandate that I've just been speaking of. He writes, birth control obviously involves disobedience to this command, for birth control attempts to prevent being fruitful and multiplying. But folks, many couples who use birth control are quite intent on being fruitful and multiplying. They just don't understand God's command as saying, be as fruitful as biologically possible. Three kids, admittedly, is not as much multiplication as eight. I think the math is pretty straightforward there, but both married couples in both of those cases have been fruitful. God doesn't define fruitfulness as as many as is biologically possible. And I was... I. Again, want to emphasize, we have to remember that it is not merely children that are a blessing from the Lord, Psalm 128. It's children who walk faithfully with the Lord in light of all of Scripture that are in the long run that blessing. Remember Proverbs 10, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That son's not a blessing. We need to remember, too, that it's better to have a quiver full of arrows than just one or two. That's the famous point of Psalm 127. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. That is a good text in making a case for large families. But to extend the analogy, arrows are of no value in a fight if they're broken, bent, or never reach the target. That, by the way, is why uh, Greyfriars uh, Classical Academy, as its early motto, uh, put it, arrows, beautifully formed and sharpened. It's nurture and education of children for the Lord that leads to the blessing, not mere birthing. So that's why I am and have been supportive of married couples asking the question, how many children do I have the resources to raise well in the fear of the Lord? I think that's a faithful question. It's entirely consistent with the calling of the cultural mandate. 
And it's a question that each couple is uniquely in a position to answer. Let me take up a third uh, argument that has been made against any and all use of birth control. It's also theological, and it's the argument against birth control from the sovereignty of God and our need to trust him. Typically, this line of argument begins with the emphasis that God, as the creed says, is the Lord and giver of life. And there are broad and deep biblical themes uh, that are usually summarized in this um, context. For example, uh, the theme in the Bible that the opening and closing of the womb is an act of God. Uh, This is a theme, Genesis 29 When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It's an act of God's sovereignty to open or to close the womb. Likewise, the gift of a child is something God is in sovereign control of, according to the scriptures, and gives it in fulfillment of his promise in answer to our prayers. That first chapter of 1 Samuel, so poignant, the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, we're told. But then, in answer to her prayers, he gives her Samuel, sovereign gifting there. We also uh, have pointed out to us in this context that God is at work sovereignly, mysteriously, and wonderfully in the womb, uh, knitting together the baby uh, there in the womb. Psalm 139 is famous for that, among other passages. And so, folks, are are you surprised when there is, on the part of many, righteous indignation expressed against our society's whole hog embrace of the contraceptive lifestyle, if I may speak that way, in a way that's, uh, you could imagine, similar to uh, Christians' moral revulsion at the science of cloning and our uh, tendency to say, how dare you play God? Or to genetic engineering, how dare you usurp the prerogatives of God? Uh, There are many in the anti-birth control uh, school of thought who make that kind of righteously indignant uh, argument. I think there is validity to these considerations. Folks, uh, science has brought with it an unargued assumption, if we can do it, we may do it. And the modern methods of contraceptives should be scrutinized for a number of reasons. I'll come right back to that in just a few minutes. I think also that our brothers and sisters do at times uh, identify uh, a taproot in the Christian church of unbelief. We're all, if I might say it, control freaks when we're afraid. And there certainly can be a desire to control reproduction out of a lack of confidence in God. Uh, There's way too little surrender to God and his good providence in the church today, uh, too little of trust in him to provide what we need, and modern man certainly does like to play God. I think these are worthy uh, points that are made. But here, too, I'm going to say that I think our brothers and sisters making this case against any and all use of birth control over state their case. I remember reading in some of the literature early in my ministry, uh, Christian couples being exhorted to, quote, let God plan your family. And 
uh, I would hear couples uh, say, we have decided to trust God for the size of our family. Now, I think the direct implications of those kinds of statements is, first of all, those who use birth control are somehow interfering with God's sovereignty over conception and birth. And secondly, those who use birth control are not trusting God, by definition, to do what is best for them. And I think there's a couple of problems with this way of thinking. Number one, I think this argument betrays a wrong view of God's sovereignty. Ayer, again, is an evangelical author writing against any and all use of birth control. Quote, spacing, as a family planning method, is the attempt to usurp God's sovereignty by self-crafting one's family. Who can tell but that one special combination of genes will produce the greatest revival preacher the world has ever known, or the greatest musician, or the most wonderful mother? By discarding month by month our opportunities for reproduction, we are not only limiting our family size, but limiting God's opportunities to choose the best children for us. End of quote. Now, guys, this is where I want to get up on my high Calvinistic horse and say, let's get one thing straight. No one, quote, lets God plan the size of their family or anything else for that matter. The couple who uses birth control is no more interfering with God's sovereignty than others. The couple who does not use it is no more allowing God to be sovereign. This is a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That doctrine says God gets his way. All that he wills, he accomplishes, no matter what we do. His sovereignty, friends, uh, extends to what you think right now about what I'm saying in this podcast and how it might have uh, any kind of influence in your decisions going forward. Uh, That's his sovereignty. His opportunities, so to, uh, to speak, are never limited by anything we do. So, a wrong view of God's sovereignty, but... I think there's also a wrong view of human responsibility that's lurking in that way of arguing. Think about it this way. Matthew 6, Jesus speaks of God clothing us just as he does the lilies of the field. It's a wonderful passage for our comfort. But question, is it interfering with God's sovereignty then to get a job, to cash our paycheck, to shop at Plato's Closet? so that we might have clothes. Uh, In Daniel 2, God removes kings and raises up kings. Question, is it wrong to vote in elections in order to have some influence on who is raised up for us as political leaders in the United States, for example? Well, the answer is, of course not. We recognize God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. And this is something that's intuitive for us in every other area of our lives. I hope you folks pray for God's protection before you take that long road trip. And I also hope you put on your seatbelt and you don't text while you drive. God's sovereignty is completely compatible with our human responsibility. And I have, uh, over the years, uh, again and again, come back to this simple observation The conception of human life is, like we meditated on uh, some time ago, as godlike as anything we do. But folks, God has placed this responsibility in our hands. 
And my contention is that in doing so, he calls us to exercise wise and good stewardship in this area as in every other. This uh, capacity to have children, it's a gift, yes, to be stewarded. We should put that gift to fully to use, uh, fully informed by biblical principles, moved by biblical priorities, but we're still called to exercise our wise judgment. So, in parenting, like every other area of human responsibility, planning is a virtue. That is being godlike as well. So, I submit it is right for husbands and wives to give consideration to various factors in planning a family. Health is a consideration, her health in particular. Sometimes uh, birth control is a wise effort to preserve a woman's health. Family income, the ability to support a family, uh, this too is a wise consideration as uh, a couple plans uh, their family. A family uh, or the demands of education, um, the kind of vocation uh, that is being pursued by uh, the head of the household in particular. These are all worthy considerations. So, uh, planned parenting, of course, as long as the planning is in keeping with biblical values and priorities. So, that is my respectful critique of the anti-birth control argument. Now, for the duration of our time, I want to look secondly at Christians who are worldly in their use of birth control. After all, why spend all this time on arguments against birth control if they're not ultimately convincing? Well, I have hopefully shown in some measure along the way These arguments do raise profound issues, and I think, brothers and sisters, they draw attention to a great deal of careless, selfish, and sinful behavior on the part of evangelicals. Uh, You've heard me reference appreciation for points made by those in the anti-birth control position. I've certainly not presented their arguments as compelling as it can be. Uh, There was a time when I was all but persuaded by them. Here's where I have landed in terms of my own conviction about the insights of those arguments. And this is a conviction that's about 20 years old now, uh, taken from a sermon I preached on the subject. Here's my thesis. The Bible would call for an extremely cautious and radically countercultural attitude toward the use of birth control. Now, first of all, why would I call for extreme caution in the use of birth control? Well, please listen carefully. It's this sobering reality to anyone who considers themselves a pro-life Christian. Folks, the world that supplies to the church these modern methods of contraceptives has little concern to distinguish between that which prevents a pregnancy and that which terminates a pregnancy. But from our perspective as Christians, the difference is one of life and death. Remember what I said at the outset, Planned Parenthood puts abortion in the same category as contraceptives. They have no scruples about ending the life of a child 
in an unplanned pregnancy. I'm preaching right now at Resurrection, a series on abortion in the American church, and I am reviewing the biblical case for the full personhood of the fetus in the womb from conception, and the reality that intentionally terminating a pregnancy is a form of murder. That's the Bible-believing Christian position on abortion. I can't elaborate on that further here. I simply want to point out that many Christians who embrace the pro-life position I've just summarized are thoughtless about the ways in which certain contraceptives have an abortive or potentially abortive effect. I have some examples. Number one, intrauterine devices. Here's a helpful online explanation of this particular type of contraceptive. Intrauterine devices, IUDs, are small devices placed in your uterus to interrupt the process of insemination. IUDs have been on and off the market for decades. They're very popular around the world and one of the most effective forms of birth control. Now that source goes on to say how IUDs work. They cause an inflammation response in the lining of your uterus. This inflammation is toxic to sperm. It also makes your uterus hostile to implantation if fertilization occurs. Now, folks, that last line should mean everything to the Christian. A chemical that makes a mother's womb hostile to a fertilized egg, that's a chemical that's resulting in the death of a child. We believe that a fertilized egg is a very, very tiny human being. And any chemical that makes the womb hostile to the survival of that uh, is tending towards the death of that child. Example number two. Uh, This is from the 1990s. The pill called RU486. It was the first uh, kind of so-called abortion in a bottle. Time Magazine had a cover story. The pill that changes everything and spoke of making abortion truly a personal and private choice. Uh, This was a form of abortion, less invasive, chemically induced, uh, and uh, often used by many women as, in their minds at least, a kind of birth control. But it was clearly abortive. Nowadays, we have what's been called the morning-after pill, sometimes called the emergency contraceptive. Uh, Here's what the Mayo Clinic website says about that. Morning-after pills can help prevent pregnancy if you've had unprotected sex, either because you didn't use birth control, you missed a birth control pill, you were sexually assaulted, or your method of birth control failed. Morning-after pills do not end a pregnancy that has implanted. They work primarily by delaying or preventing ovulation. Now, what this does not acknowledge is that this morning-after pill can, in fact, have the effect of preventing the implanting in the womb of a fertilized egg. In other words, uh, the sexual encounter has resulted in the conception of a child. But the morning-after pill ensures that, if you will, the womb 
will be inhospitable to that child. This means that the result is a very, very early miscarriage. Look up the article on the Gospel Coalition website, Was Hobby Lobby All Wrong About Emergency Contraceptives? It's written by Kevin DeYoung, and he takes readers on a tour of what the drug makers actually say about the possible effects of this morning-after pill. Those are three examples uh, as I try to make the point that from the world's perspective, uh, abortion and birth control are not uh, necessarily distinguished. There's no uh, investment in doing so. Folks, I need to point out with one other illustration that there are concerns that many Christians have raised about that which is the most common form of contraceptive in America, something uh, generally just called the pill. That's, of course, the, the daily intake of hormones that's designed to prevent pregnancy in women. Now, listen to Planned Parenthood's website explaining how the pill is intended to work. The birth control pill works by stopping sperm from joining with an egg. When sperm joins with an egg, it's called fertilization. The hormones in the pill safely stop ovulation. No ovulation means there's no egg for sperm to fertilize, so pregnancy can't happen. Now, a committed pro-life Christian would find that explanation reassuring, wouldn't they? If the pill prevents fertilization, then there is no abortion. Whatever other issues there might be, Christians do not need to be worried about abortive effects of the pill. Well, folks, here's the only problem with coming hastily to that conclusion. It's the fact that the pill is not 100% effective. Women faithfully following the regiment for the pill have gotten pregnant. It's a fact, which means, of course, that it is possible for a child to be conceived despite the use of the pill. And in light of that possibility, here's the question that some Christians have raised. If there is even a statistically small chance that I will conceive a child while on the pill, what would be the effect of those daily hormones on that child? Would they have a secondary effect similar to the morning after pill, that of keeping the fertilized egg from implanting? Now, folks, I'm not able to answer that question. I acknowledge that. Uh, it's a question that I believe every conscientious couple, though, should be aware of, and they are responsible to grapple with that. When I was starting my ministry, the Christian Medical and Dental Association had published this very careful statement on this subject, and I'm quoting, the CMDA recognizes that there are differing viewpoints among Christians regarding the broad issue of birth control and the use of contraceptives. The issue at hand, however, is whether or not hormonal birth control methods have post-conceptional effects, i.e. cause abortion. CMDA has consulted many experts in the field of reproduction who have reviewed the scientific literature. While there are data that cause concern, our current scientific knowledge does not establish a definitive causal link between the, re between the routine use of hormonal birth control 
and abortion. However, neither are there data to deny a post-conceptional effect. Because this issue cannot be resolved with our current understanding, CMDA calls upon researchers to further investigate the mechanisms of action of hormonal birth control. Additionally, because the possibility of abortive effects cannot be ruled out, prescribers of hormonal birth control should consider informing patients of this potential factor. Now, folks, I obviously do not prescribe hormonal birth control as a pastor, but I do inform couples about this potential factor in my premarital counseling. I do not presume to legislate the morality of the pill because the abortive effects, to the full extent that I'm aware, are not established. But I do urge caution, especially when there's been a flag waved of possible unintended abortive effects. Being informed and radically and consistently pro-life is utterly essential to our biblical fidelity. Folks, many Christians are driven by the same priorities as the world in their choice of uh, birth control methods. What's most convenient, what's most effective, with very little other considerations taken up. And I just want to say, uh, I'm calling for extreme caution in the use of birth control because the stakes are high. A child's life conceived, developing, that's why I speak of caution. But secondly, why would I call for radically countercultural attitudes towards birth control? It's because the world's reasons for embracing modern methods of birth control are soaked in ungodly attitudes towards sex and marriage and kids and, for that matter, personal freedom apart from responsibility. And if Christians use some of the same methods of birth control, it needs to be for radically different reasons. Our society makes no bones about it. Modern contraceptives have liberated us from traditional monogamous relationships. They have freed us from the burden of children. They've especially given women the opportunity to achieve in society everything that men have at the devastating expense of the conceiving and raising of children. There's so much that's ungodly about this. Here's the gut check that I would call for as Christian couples seek to plan their parenthood in ways that are consistent with biblical values. Three pastoral questions. Number one, are you making use of birth control as part of your long-term plan to be fruitful and multiply? Is it in order to be better prepared, in other words, to take your part in the great kingdom work of parenting, or is it just a way to put off your privileges and responsibilities in that area, perhaps even indefinitely? There are a lot of young Christian couples who enter their married life together in a us bubble. They both have career ambitions. They both have a long list of weekend adventures they want to take. They found the person that they want to enjoy all those things with. And the marriage is all about, well, them. Now, that's not a biblical view of marriage. It's actually not a Christian view of marriage. And life, for that matter, you, your marriage, your bodies, all for Jesus, as the hymn puts it. And if something fundamental to God's purpose in joining you together is absent, then there's a misuse of his gift of marriage in that. 
Again, uh, there are a variety of ways that using birth control can actually advance the mission of being fruitful and multiplying. I've spoken of those. A little delay in starting a family, a little spacing of those kids, but let's be honest with ourselves, always where our hearts are. It's easy for our hearts to be where the world's heart is. And I submit that there are few things as deeply sacrificial as parenting, and we need to be as we enter into marriage and as we uh, conduct our lives as married men and women, we need to be prepared to embrace the full sacrifice that God calls us to in fulfilling that cultural mandate. Question number two, are you unwittingly adopting worldly values as you make prudential judgments about how many children you can raise? So I've already uh, argued for the use of wisdom by Christians in planning their families, But let's be mindful that there are or can be a lot of hidden worldly assumptions as we live in our first world culture. For example, American Christians uh, tend to assume that it's basic to responsible parenting, at least a certain class of American Christians. It's basic to the responsibility to provide each child with his own bedroom, to give each of our children the best possible education, to provide each of our children every extracurricular activity that they're interested in, to provide them their own car, for crying out loud, at age 16, and so on and so on. You know what I think that leads to? I think it leads to American Christians having uh, not many more, on average, uh, than the general average of children in America. I think the number is 1.7 children. Uh, in the typical American home. I'd like to think that Christian families in America are higher than that. But folks, the world needs salt and light Christians. It doesn't need kids raised with the ability to buy all the latest name brand clothes. I was listening just recently to an expert on China talking about the demographic crisis approaching for that nation. You know that China has had a one-child policy for some decades now, and the birth rate has plummeted in China, endangering the future of that society. It's not too much to say. Communist authorities have recognized this. They've reversed course, but they're encountering problems uh, in encouraging families to have more more than one child. And one of them is that Chinese families, when they've only had one child to invest in, have invested so much, particularly in the area of education, they look at all the expense of that one child and they reason quite naturally, we can't afford a second child. But we need to rethink uh, our assumptions about exactly how expensive it actually is to raise children. Your children need food, of course, they need shelter medical care. They need a lot of you. Don't allow the values of our affluent society uh, to stifle your ambition to have children. And third pastoral question as a gut check, are you fully embracing the reality that more godly children is better for the future of the church and even of the world? Here I can scarcely do better than to point you to another article, this one also by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, You can find it at the Gospel Coalition, or you can Google, It's Time for a New 
culture war strategy. I think this is a rather brave article by Dr. DeYoung. He gets a lot of pushback for it, I gather. You can also Google his article once more on faith and fecundity. He clarifies a couple of points in response to his critics, but then he doubles down on his thesis. And what is his thesis? Well, his thesis is American Christians are obsessed by winning the culture war through political means. And we're constantly finding ourselves frustrated and betrayed by leaders they thought they knew. Christians should, in fact, be involved in political processes, but here's what DeYoung says. To marshal our energies as if political victories were more important than strengthening the family is a decidedly unconservative position. I'm not calling for abandoning politics, but I'm asking the question, what does it profit a man if he gets textualists on the Supreme Court but loses his own children? So, What's an even more fundamental culture war strategy for conservative Christians? Here's what Kevin DeYoung submits. Have more children and disciple them like crazy. I think he's sounding exactly the right note. Uh, As we, as Christians, live in America, seeking the kingdom in the long view. Folks, it's the secular and the irreligious in America that are having the fewest children. Who is going to inherit this land? Well, maybe the Mormons will. Maybe the Muslims will. I'd like to think, I pray, that evangelical Christians will, with a long view. Here's how I'll close this lengthy podcast. I'll quote again from DeYoung and uh, allow him to have the final word here. Do you want to rebel against the status quo? Do you want people to ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you? First Peter 3. Tote your brood of children through Target. There's almost nothing more countercultural than having more children. And once we have those children, there is almost nothing more important than catechizing them in the faith, developing their moral framework, and preparing them to be deeply compassionate lovers of God and lovers of people and relentlessly biblical lovers of truth. Amen. And that's what we'll continue to consider in this podcast series on Christian parenting. Thanks for listening today, folks. The Lord keep you in his grace. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.